that we have an opportunity in the UK at the moment to, to share the hope we have and for it to land on more fertile ground than normal. The world around you is asking the questions we've been answering for 30 years when they weren't asking them. Let's not miss this moment for the gospel. Welcome everybody, this is Simon Gilbo with Inspired and it's great to be back with you. I've got a friend of mine called Gav Gav Calver. I think many of you will know him already. He's the CEO of the Evangelical Alliance. Welcome Gav. Thank you. It's great to be here, my friend. It's good to have you. So, you know, we've crossed paths at umpteen different conferences. I think the first time we met <laughs> was um, New Wine North and you were working for Youth for Christ at the time. You were running the youth venue and you've yeah. been on a fantastically exciting journey since then and before then. So let's just get straight into it, bro. Um, hmm. Let's go back to school days. Where were you born? A bit of background. What was, what was school like? Yeah, I was, I was born in Wolverhampton because my old man was running Youth for Christ at the time. Um, but I grew up in South London, went to school, that was all good. Didn't do that well at school. I'm uh, from a family of very clever people, but mm -hmm. I didn't get the brains, I got the looks. And so uh, <laughs> Many will dispute often, that. Well, yeah, fair enough. But people often ask me for sort of things about your school days and what did you do well in? And uh, I guess the funniest thing for me is I got an A in one thing, right. um, and only one in my GCSEs and A-levels. And the thing I got an A in was sewing which often surprises people because <laughs> at my school you um, had to do woodwork, sewing or cooking and I wasn't allowed to do woodwork because of previous inappropriate use of tools and so I chose sewing and it turns out that's the only thing I did really well at school at and you know what's interesting is 20 or so years on I'm just like it's amazing what God can do when you're told at school just to you know if you can possibly pass your exams you'll be okay and what I'd say to any sort of kids out there or parents out there is don't make judgments too early on who your kids are going to become. That's all. Oh, brilliant. I'm glad you're saying that because uh, about through through the wall, about sort of six foot is my son next door. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting as you're journeying with teenagers how sometimes the choices aren't so good. And I think back to my school days. I mean, I've got one legendary report, which hmm. uh, was like in 28 years of teaching, I have never had such a stubborn, such an arrogant boy. <laughs> and it just went on sort of, you couldn't get away with those reports these days, could you? Anyways, no. um, a lot of people will will have known your father, I'm guessing. So I, di I didn't realize he was both Youth for Christ head and Evangelical head, uh, Evangelical Alliance head. And you've followed exactly in the same sort of footsteps, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the funny things, isn't it? Growing up, I wanted to be a footballer. Everyone says that. I got closer than most, but nowhere near as close to it as I like to think I did, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and my siblings, I'm one of four, they all wanted to sort of go into ministry. I had absolutely no interest. And so God's got such a funny sense of humour. And, you know, there's just something in the DNA in the end, because actually my granddad was the head of the EA as well. Oh, was he? And my mum's dad, yeah. When my granddad was head of EA, he started Tear Fund. Right. And when my dad was at EA, we're just we're going to EA, he started Spring Harvest. So I do need a good idea as well. But there's this DNA thing which you can't fight about reaching the lost and uniting the church. And of the three, the three siblings I have would all rather have ended up doing what I'm doing than I would have done. But God in his humour and his mercy, this is how it's gone. So people often think, oh, look at you just continuing in the family business. But when they know the story beneath, they realise there's a lot more to it than that. So was it Wimbledon that you ended up playing for? No, no. I, ne I nearly went to play as a younger person for Crystal Palace. I played for a few semi-pro teams. But I'm quite glad I didn't go to Wimbledon because I love Wimbledon. I'm a massive <laughs> supporter of AFC Wimbledon. And sometimes if you get cl too close to some of the things you love, you're just disappointed. So I'm glad I didn't know any of the politics or anything else. But when it came to football, I mean, I was a goalkeeper. 
and I was quite good. But then my shoulders come out of their sockets now, which kind of limits the ability to play in goal. So even now, I, I remember um, rolling over in bed once. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere wrong here. And and my wife Anne said to me, what's wrong? Because I was screaming and both my arms had come out of their sockets. Oh, so wow. there, there was a limitation to what I can do in goal. And uh, now I'm just trying to not live my dreams through my children because my son's 11 and he plays in goal for a semi-professional team. So I'm trying to limit the pressure on him. But he's got good genes as long as his shoulders don't come out. So were you always a preacher's kid and a good boy and destined to do this or did you have some crazy episodes? <laughs> um, I was banned from church when I was 14 <laughs> for six months, wow. which was interesting because at the time I was, grew up in Ixthus Christian Fellowship, which is a great church run by Roger and Faith Forster. And uh, it was awkward. I got banned for six months, not for anything specific, for continued bad behaviour. And I remember at the time being delighted because it meant my mum couldn't make me go. Yeah. You know, you kind of got made to go to church, but I wasn't allowed to go. Mm. Now that I've got a 14-year-old, I'm terrified at the idea they'd get banned from church. Um, and so I left the church for four and a half years. I wouldn't have said I was a Christian at any point in my teens until the day after my 18th birthday party. Uh, my 18th birthday party is a story for another day. But um, I got myself in, uh, into bad shape, let's say. And I woke up the next day. I sat on a park bench on my own in Mayo Park in Forest Hill, South London. And I just surrendered my life to Jesus. You know, I tried everything else and uh, it hadn't worked. It had let me down. It hurt me. And I sat on this park bench and I surrendered my life to Jesus. And then I said to the Lord, I will go wherever, whenever and whatever for you. That was the most dangerous prayer I prayed. It's a prayer that I've at times regretted, but would never change. Brilliant. Yeah, I prayed that prayer and obviously that, that took me off to Burundi. You moved a lot, didn't you, as, as a child and through teenage years? You, your parents packed it off to the States. Was all that sort of transition, was that difficult? Well, it's really hard, yeah. I mean, um, six months after my mum and dad moved to the US was when I gave my life to Jesus. So do I regret them going? No, because of what it led to. But that was really painful. You know, you kind of, I was 17, I was in my lower sixth at school. Um, I would pretend to do some of the Christian stuff to keep them happy, but wasn't that interested. And then this language of God calling us to the other side of the world comes in and you're like, oh, what's that all about? I remember saying to my dad, not as kindly as this, but saying to him, if you move to America, I'll never spend another day pretending to believe in this Jesus you believe in. Ouch. And they still went. And uh, six, six months or so of messing around on my behalf um, led to me in the end being in that desperate moment where you tried everything else to to fill that vacuum in your heart and you realised in the end it was Jesus. You know, um, till I surrendered my life to Jesus, I was never an atheist. I was never in that kind of place. Jesus was like an auntie figure. You know, someone you knew existed, but you didn't like hanging out with. Um, but it came to a point I was like, actually, this is, this Jesus is real. I've seen stuff in my own life and and it's all or nothing. I never understand half-hearted faith because you, you miss out on so much in both ways. But when it came to fully surrendering my life to Jesus, that changed everything. But I can't pretend that it's not been hard, my folks being so far away. Mm -hmm. And then you add to that, that's well over 20 years ago now. I've got a 14-year-old and 11-year-old. They've not seen their grandparents since 2019 because obviously we've come yeah. out of the back of so much coronavirus stuff and they're still in the States. And so there's a price tag to it, isn't there? But Jesus never said it would be easy. He said he'd be with you. Yeah. So after school, did you go to university, straight into a job? What did you get up to? Yeah, that's when there was another battle, really. After I prayed the wherever, whenever, whatever, which, as you say, you prayed and it led you to Burundi. It's easy to say, hard to live, isn't it? Mm. Felt a real sense from the Lord. I was going to be going to Nottingham University to do sports studies. And I felt a real sense from the Lord that actually he wanted, there was training for ministry. 
So I ended up, of all places, at London Bible College, which was right back into the goldfish bowl because my granddad had been principal there, my mum and dad had met there, (laughs) and uh, went to Bible College, um, trained. In my first term at Bible College, I was asked four times if I was a Christian, which was really helpful because um, people expected, not so much now, but at that point, you were like Christian mafia or Christian royalty, if you like. So people expected you to be something that was never going to happen. And yet, actually, uh, redeemed. I I am a bit of a wide boy that wants to win people for Jesus. I am much more interested in reaching the lost than I am in uh, serving the saved. And so that meant as well that some of my views on some of the stuff was different to other people. Um, And it was challenging. It was difficult. But after a year or so, I settled in, met my wife. Didn't know she was my wife at the time. Mm -hmm. And then three years after that, uh, randomly from nowhere, uh, the Lord led someone across my path who who challenged us to go and work for Youth for Christ. So we headed to Hales Owen, having been a London boy all that time, headed to Hales Owen in the West Midlands three years after starting at LBC to work for Youth for Christ. We got married, went and worked for Youth for Christ. And from then it's been the greatest adventure possible, but it's not easy. And I think that's where people get it. We, we expect it to be easy. It's not easy. But following Jesus and serving Jesus wholeheartedly is incredible adventure. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you haven't mentioned much about Anne, but tell us a bit about her now and the challenges you've faced. Yeah, I mean, Anne's amazing. She's uh, such a gift, so so incredible. Uh, she's a plastic scouser. She's from the Wirral um, near <laughs> Liverpool. She's a big Liverpool football club fan, which is a problem in our house because it means that our children have to make a choice. My daughter's Wimbledon. My son's trying to be Wimbledon and Liverpool. That's fine. And um, we're regularly reminding Anne, the only team in global football to have beaten Liverpool in every cup final they face them in is Wimbledon. Might be one, but it's still 100%. Uh, but Anne's amazing. Uh, she's incredible. She's a... She, she leads a church planting movement called Unleashed, which does home churches, and it's really exciting stuff. But we've had a really challenging time from there to now. Um, a few years into marriage, Anne decided she wanted to have a child, and that sounded like a good idea. And we tried for a baby in years, you're talking years, and we went for the tests and stuff. And people listening to this will understand how painful that is. And we went for the tests, and I felt sorry for Anne, because she clearly had a fertility issue. And she came back absolutely fine. And I remember being told I was the problem and I couldn't have kids. And that was just devastating. I was a youth worker. The same week I was told I couldn't have kids, 14-year-old girl in our youth group announced she was pregnant. Mm. Um, It's all very painful and difficult. But then, do you know, amazingly, uh, the same month, literally after being told I couldn't have kids and didn't have another period, she was pregnant which was just unbelievable. Amen. It's like, saviour, he can move the mountains. He can also impregnate women from sterile men if he wants to. Mm. And nine months later, our daughter Emily was born, which is amazing. Then it was about nine months after that, my dad was over. And as I said, they live in the States. So when they come to Britain, I tried to make them feel at home. So I went out to get the national dish of Great Britain, a curry. Mm-hmm. And I came back with the curry and Anne was crying and my dad looked like he'd seen a ghost. Anne took me into a side room. She said, Gav, I'm pregnant again. I said, who's the dad? (laughs) She'd never say that, always assume a miracle. Obviously, it was me. And we went for the scan. Now, I'm going to help guys listening to this. You've not had kids yet. When you go for the scan, even though you can't quite see it or anything else, just pretend you can and pretend it's cute. It's just easier. (laughs) So I'm there looking at this lump that looks something between a mushroom and a sultana, and I'm pretending it's cute. And uh, the lady's looking really sad, the midwife. She says, Reverend and Mrs. Calver, I'm really sorry. Your baby hasn't got a heartbeat. Um, It's Mm. died in the womb. And in that moment, I'm like, I can deal with miracle babies. I can deal with no babies, but I can't deal with this. 
And Amelie, our daughter, hugged me on the leg and I felt God speak to me clearer than almost any other time in my life. I felt him say, do not be ungrateful for that which you don't have, but be grateful for that which you do mm. and be faithful to me as I'm faithful to you. A couple of years later, Anne got pregnant again, right? By this point, I've accepted, I've been healed. You know, you and I have met each other at so many conferences, Simon. Every time they mentioned infertility, I was right at the front getting prayed for. <laughs> and, you know, and let's be honest, without being too crass, there's only one way to test those prayers, isn't there? Yeah. And, and Anne got pregnant. Now, what's interesting as well is we found out it was a boy. Now, the condition I had, uh, let's say, around fertility meant it was impossible to have a boy. And there was a less than 5% chance of having a girl. So it's physically impossible, we've been told, to have a boy. Mm. So isn't that incredible? It's clearly been healed. Yeah. And we go for a, a scan and they refer us to a specialist place. Now, fortunately, the specialist place is six miles from our house, the specialist place for the whole of the UK at the Birmingham Women's Hospital at that point. And we go for these extra scans. And you know you've got a problem when at 18 weeks, you started with two medics and you end up with 24. Wow. And they're explaining that our, our son's really, really sick. It's really anemic. Basically, Anne and I have got antibodies. I won't go into the science, but they're not the common ones they give you an injection for. Less than 1% of the population have these four antibodies. Anne and I both have them and they set each other off. So Anne's body fights any baby in the womb and there's no cure, just intervention. And so they explain to us, they show fluid around all the organs. They explain that our son's almost certainly not going to make it. He's got a 5% chance of survival. They also explain there's two donors on the blood list for the whole country who've got the right blood. And the next day at 18 weeks, they will do a blood transfusion in the womb. So the next day they do this blood transfusion in the womb. It's really, really uh, the most emotional day of my life. I think. Mm. And they take out half the blood. They replace it with new blood. They then explain that Anne needs to sleep for four hours before they scan. You see, the biggest risk to the baby is not the transfusion. It's a heart attack from that much blood being taken out and taken in. And so they explain in four hours time, we'll scan. If the baby's moving, we'll fight another day. If the baby's not moving, we're really sorry it's died. But prepare yourself for the likelihood it's died. So I sat by Anne's bed for four hours. You know, non-Christians say, why does God allow suffering? Christians say, where is God when you're suffering? I tell you where he is, he's holding your hand. Yeah. And I felt God holding my hand as I prayed a prayer out loud. I prayed out loud, Lord Jesus, if this baby lives, you are good. And if this baby dies, you are still good. Mm. Either way, I'm going to get up tomorrow and say that you're good. They scanned. Baby was moving. We fought another day. Anne was in hospital every other day for a blood test. She, every 10 days, she would have one of these transfusions in the womb. In total, we had nine blood transfusions in the womb. Each time I prayed that same prayer, and each time, by the grace of God, our baby son was still moving. Then at 30 weeks, they basically said to us, better out than in. You don't normally say that at 30 weeks. It's still quite early. Mm -hmm. But they said the dangers are less outside than in, so we're going to deliver your baby at 30 weeks. They delivered this baby. They said, well, you can't touch him because he's too fragile. We'll rush him off to an incubator, but we'll hold him up to show you. They delivered this tiny baby. The, the professor held him up. At that moment, this baby wheezed in the professor's face. Two uh, things happen. Anne thinks I'm so embarrassed. I think, that's my boy. Yes. Then they take him off. He goes to an incubator for a number of weeks, has four more blood transfusions outside of the womb. But you know what? We called him Daniel because he'd fought his own lions then. Mm. And he's absolutely fine now. And he was absolutely fine a few months after being born because every three to six months, all the blood in your body replaces itself. And what's incredible, though, during that season was this. One, before we went through that chapter, if you'd asked me my biggest weakness, it would have been an unawareness of any weaknesses. Right. So off the back of it, I've operated out of brokenness. You minister very differently out of brokenness than you do before. But secondly, the truth of that prayer would have remained. If our baby hadn't made it, God would still be good. 
And though our baby did make it, God is still good. And as a church in the West in particular, we have got to accept the reality that life can sometimes be pants, but God is good. But life can be wonderful and God is good. Whereas I think too often we're transactional. God, if this works out, if you'll do this for me, everything's fine. During that season, frankly, without Jesus, I don't know how you'd have coped because in the pain you lean in. And we've been able to graciously in the years since, Anne and I have been able to minister to many couples who've been on a similar journey. Because I can guarantee you in your church, wherever you're listening to this from, there'll be a number of couples struggling with this. The problem is it's very rarely talked about. Yeah, I'm, I'm just leaving a sort of pregnant pause there because it's so meaty what you just said and it warrants digestion and contemplation, doesn't it? Mm. So moving on from that incredibly challenging chapter and praise God you've got two vibrant, healthy kids who are going mm. great guns. Um, the YFC years, so you, you graduated through the ranks, you actually became a boss, whatever the title is, National Director yeah. of Youth for Christ. Uh, give us some highlights from those years. Do you know what? It was just a blast. Youth ministry is the fun part of the church. Mm. It was just incredible, absolutely incredible. We did all kinds of things. There was a Youth for Christ exhibit at Orton Towers. I would preach <laughs> in youth offenders institutes all the time. You would go into schools and see kids make big decisions for Jesus. You would do the most ridiculously dangerous things, and yet great outcomes would happen. It was just an absolute blast. It was so much fun. Um, I got incredible coaching from the likes of John Burns and Roy Crown, got really developed, invested in, amazing years. But the highlight is now, not then, because the highlight is when I um, go and speak at something. In fact, I'll tell you a story. Um, I used to preach in Young Offenders Institutes all the time, as I referred to there. When you go and preach in a Young Offenders Institute, Simon, if you ever think you've lost it as an evangelist, go into a Young <laughs> Offenders Institute. You'll come out thinking you're Billy Graham. Yes. And I'll tell you why. Because I've done that. the lads get an hour out of their cells, don't they if, they, uh, if they go to chapel. But then if they respond to your talk, they get 15 minutes more out of their cells. Yeah. And so every week they all become Christians. Mm -hmm. And so you go in and it's fun, but you're never quite sure what difference it makes. Mm. Then about a year ago, just before, just before the pandemic, so more like two years ago, I was preaching in a church in Southwest London and this mum came up to me afterwards. She said, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I did that sort of falsely humble thing. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure to be with you. I've loved being here. She said, oh, no, 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 no. Not for this morning. That was bang average. She said, thank you for 10 years ago when you preached in a Young Offenders Institute and my son was there and he gave his life to Jesus. Mm. And my son is now back in that Young Offenders Institute as a chaplaincy worker trying to help other young offenders meet Jesus. Love it. So the highlight of Youth for Christ is now being almost middle-aged and meeting adults who are 25, 30, who say, I was in that school hall, or I was here, or I was here, and I surrendered my life to Jesus. That's the highlight. Whereas at the time, we were just on this adventure thinking we were changing the world. And you know what? One person at a time, we kind of were. Yeah. You know, one of our partners in, in Burundi is Youth for Christ, and, and mm. they have built up the, the best franchise of schools there. We built four schools of them. Each one is the best in its province, the first Brilliant. school with accreditation for universities in America. And so it really is aspiring for excellence in Jesus' name. And that would be one of your mantras, wouldn't it? Oh, definitely. I think we, we wanted to do everything really well. We wanted to be innovative. But also we wanted to have the unchanging word of God and the unchanging gospel. One of the things I think is a challenge to people is Bonhoeffer warned of it years ago, cheap grace, make the gospel mm. what people want to hear so they say yes. At Youth for Christ, we really tried not to do that. 
Don't, be, don't manipulate people into making a decision. Make it clear, following Jesus is the absolute hardest thing you could possibly do, but it's the greatest thing you could possibly do. And I think one of the challenges to all of us working with younger generations is at times we, we think we, we need to entertain more, we need to water everything down or be too relevant. Yet in reality, you know, we don't lose young people because we don't entertain them enough. We don't challenge them enough. Yeah. We, we make the bar so pathetically low that it's not worth giving everything else up for. We also sort of um, decide that we'll, we'll go soft on this and soft on this because that will get better results. But actually in the long run, you know, Jesus calls us to come and die with him, not just to come and follow him. And so I do think that is a challenge as we work with younger generations. At the same time, younger generations who are going for it with Jesus, boy, do they stand out these days. Mm. So there's something almost early church about it for some of our young people where they're so distinct that they can go out on a limb and they can see results we never would have thought possible. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got time for a few more highlights or indeed lowlights, anything that went hmm. catastrophically wrong. But, I mean, le- lessons learned. From the Youth for Christ years? Yeah. Um, a few lessons learned. One, one lesson learned, um, never overestimate your own involvement. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. I think there's, there were times where we ministered with the swagger and you start thinking it's about you and yet then the Lord sorts you out, doesn't he? Reminds you it's all about him. I think another thing as a young evangelist, I learned pretty quickly, the results business is down to the Lord, not to me. Mm-hmm. I remember preaching twice and being mentored in it. And one week we saw about 30 kids give their lives to Jesus, which is just amazing. The next week we saw absolutely nothing. No one made a decision. And I remember the feedback when lots of people decided was, wasn't God good? The feedback when no one did, oh, a bit too much of you, Gav. Mm-hmm. And I remember learning early on, actually, If lots of people come to Jesus, the glory is God's. If no one comes to Jesus, the philosophizing about it belongs to God as well. Mm -hmm. But what I will do is I will actively invite people. And I think we've lost that culture of invitation in some ways in the church because we're scared of people saying no. And I learned um, the hard way over the years, evangelism is the rejection ministry. Yeah. For every person who says yes, 10 say no. Even if you've had, you'll have had them too, Simon. Like the greatest moment of gospel preaching you can remember when the spirit was so heavily on you and you saw loads of people come to Jesus. Plenty more said no. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to deal with that rejection ministry element as well so that we can be bold enough to stand out and act out. I think the other thing that that constantly hits me, 86% of people in the UK that come to faith are under 25. Yes, Therefore, as churches, as as ministries, you know, if there's a hole in the roof, stick a bucket under it, but don't stop pouring into kids. Mm. Young people are wet cement, older people are dry cement. I think one of the other things I'd want to leave with everyone, we surveyed a bunch of young people. What kind of youth workers do you want? Over 87% wanted parent or grandparent figures. They've got the cool brother. They've got the friend. So often we, the most volatile and yet the most fruitful age group, young people, we give their discipleship and evangelism to the least mature people in our churches. Yeah. Whereas actually it's a team game. It takes a whole church to raise people into faith. And if we're going to shut the back doors of our churches and open the front doors more widely to younger generations, we've got to take more ownership across the board because young people do not have parent and grandparent figures. So now I'm not in youth ministry. I'm more useful to youth ministry than when I was in it. Because people don't see me as having, I, I've not got an, an axe to grind about youth ministry, but as a parent, I extend my table to allow my children's friends to have experience of a dad and of our home in a way they wouldn't in other places. So I guess what I'd say to people is youth ministry is not a job and working with younger generations is, is not for some, it's for all. Yeah. Because in the end, 
we all are a family. So ask yourself, what can I do to help younger generations? And young and old need each other. It's not one at the expense of the other. When in this nation, when the sort of wisdom of age and the enthusiasm of youth come together, we will see an incredible move of God. We've Amen. got to stop having new generations saying out with the old, in with the new. Work together. There's so much wisdom out there, but also let's harness and release the energy of our young people too. Amen. Just go back to that statistic. 86% of people find faith before what age? 25. I mean, that's stunning, isn't it? In its it's amazing. In, in it's, its amazing. implications. So, yeah, so looking back on Youth for Christ in a healthy way, what would, what would be your biggest sort of pride, as it were? Uh, uh, the people, the people we developed. Um, a couple of them have come to work for me at EA. And I just think that the investment in people that Youth for Christ made would be my greatest thing because multiplication is sometimes more exciting than addition. Mm. Hi, folks. I hope you're enjoying all these inspiring stories as much as I am. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you give us a top quality rating on iTunes so that more people get to hear about it. And if you want to contact me, you can get me on simongilroy.com and the other social media platforms. Now let's get back to the podcast. So we're going to move on from Youth for Christ, but big plug for you. If you're looking at engaging with the ministry, get behind those guys. They are doing phenomenal work. So did you move straight from YFC to the Evangelical Alliance? Yeah, I did. Um, I went from leading Youth for Christ to being head of mission and evangelism at EA. I tried not to get the job. I went to a job interview and I basically said, you've dropped the evangel from evangelical. Where's the gospel? Wow. Where's the good news? We're just defined by all the bad news. Problem is, Steve Clifford, who was my boss at that point, had felt God say the same thing to him, that they were dropping the evangel from evangelical. So when I said it, I think it got me the job, right. whereas I thought it would stop me getting it. Mm. So spell it out. What was your exact brief there? Um, my first job at EA was to try and help individuals and churches have greater confidence in the gospel, to try and uh, see greater outpouring of outreach into communities, and basically to serve the membership of the EA in reaching others. I mean, it was a great brief. I mean, our body language is EA. We're the table around which everything can gather. Uh -huh. We're not actually on the table. We provide the table. So one of the things I did was uh, pioneering a new thing called greatcommission.co.uk, which was a one-stop hub where if you... When I left Youth for Christ, I realised how competitive I'd been in that space, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. So if you said, how do we reach young people? The answer had to involve the three words, Youth for Christ. Now, that's not okay. At the EA, I learned um, from Steve Clifford about how the light competes against the darkness. The light doesn't compete with itself. Mm -hmm. And so we provided this table, online table, where if you searched for working with young people in evangelism, there were 47 different organisations or churches to go to. And the idea being that we would say, actually, look here, look here. If you put this with this and this and this, you get the best outcome. If you search for reaching Muslims, there were nine different things. You know, if you search for, for working with the elderly, there were 11 or 12 different things. We, we tried to put it all in one place. Because the Evangelical Alliance is like the umbrella organisation for us evangelicals in this country. So if we put the best in one place, we made it easier for people. And would you say it's in a good shape right now, the EA? It's all right, yeah. We always want more. We always want to be stronger. Um, when I stepped up to lead it, uh, that was a big deal for me, if I'm honest. I was not sure I wanted to do it. I was fairly convinced the Lord wanted me to do it. Um, and I had to process that because I knew that once you've led the Evangelical Alliance, especially in the secular tsunami we live in now, mm. there's no going back. There's so many things you won't. It's one thing to have been on a leadership team, but to run the thing, there's so many things you then can't do with your life. Mm. 
it's a bit like, forgive me, but it's a bit like coming out. It's basically saying, this is who I am. I'm a card-carrying evangelical Christian, and I will stand firmly on God's word and not change it to fit my culture. I'll change my culture with the truth in God's word. I won't back down on conversion. I, I, people don't come to faith by osmosis. They get on their knees and meet their Jesus. You know? We won't move back from the fact that death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing in human history. And we won't stop being active in the world, making the world more like the kingdom. It was a big thing. But the thing God said to me most clearly as I was stepping into the role, and I said this, shared this in my interview for the CEO job, was I believe in the next decade the Evangelical Alliance needs to be braver than it's been in its history. Mm. Because of the landscape we find ourselves in, we just need to be braver. And there are active examples of that, even right now, that people will be aware of, where we're making a stand on issues that others would rather just hide from. But at the same time, we need to be kinder. We need to be kinder because bravery and kindness don't go separately. They're not mutually exclusive. They go together. So we need to absolutely go out on a limb for the Jesus that we love. But we need to be kind and show compassion to others. That, and the world understands kindness as absolute endorsement of everything they believe in. That, that's not kindness. We're talking biblical kindness here. And the story that kind of sums it up for me is um, my best friend from growing up is an employment law barrister. He's an atheist. And he came to my commissioning into this role. And at the end of my commissioning, he basically said to me, he said, I literally could not disagree more with everything you stand for, with all you're doing and with everything you're giving your life to. <laughs> but well done, mate. And I think we can do it. You can do relationships like that. And we need to show the world that's possible too. So I want to lead the bravest and kindest EA possible in a time when the landscape makes both of those things incredibly difficult. And so go on, obviously, what are the biggest uh, minefields that you're stepping into and through right now? Well, um, you can't avoid uh, some of the LGBTQ realities the church is facing. We've been doing a lot of work around conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. I think we would be with the government on agreeing that abusive practices absolutely should be stopped and are mostly illegal already. But we've been working on, say, some of the fact that some of the issues, some of the law that there was wanting to be brought in around this and, and we're still fighting against in some level would have stopped you teaching a biblical view of marriage in a church, would have stopped you praying for a young person who is same-sex attracted but doesn't want to act upon it because that would be seen as a, a, as a conversion thing to them, whereas you could pray for a young person who was heterosexual who didn't want to act on their feelings. So, you know, in, in, a, in an ironic way, that's discrimination. Mm. And so we've been just trying to fight for the religious freedom elements in that. Now, that gets very misunderstood on social media. Also, at times, gets misunderstood in the church. But you know what? If the Evangelical Alliance don't stand up for these sort of things, who does? Well, you may remember around Easter time, Keir Starmer apologised for going to Jesus' house um, to see the vaccination centre. Yeah. And we, are, again, stand in the gap there. Why? Because because actually, if you apologise for going to anywhere where someone disagrees with you at all, you're going to have a very small world. And we need to make sure that the church still has the freedom to be the church, whilst also providing more youth ministry, more food banks and more care for the, for the world than almost anyone else. So we want to fight for the good news. We want to fight for religious freedom. But we also want to show that the church is more than making her contribution in this nation. And these things are tricky. And then other issues come, come along all, all the time from different angles. Um, we, we were speaking to climate, climate concern. Uh, we would speak into gambling. We would also speak into saying to the church, do not miss the opportunity now that you've created. A year and a half ago, none of us knew how to do online church. We now all have broadcasting skills. So by all means, go back to the building, but don't miss the 
evangelistic moment that is hybrid church. Don't miss the mortality salience in the culture, mm. normally reserved for a war zone when people ask the big questions of life and death. In the last year or so, people have been on their sofas, but they're still asking those same questions. And so we have an opportunity in the UK at the moment to, to share the hope we have and for it to land on more fertile ground than normal. The world around you is asking the questions we've been answering for 30 years when they weren't asking them. Let's not miss this moment for the gospel as well as the need to contend for our freedoms to share that gospel. Amen, you're expressing it so well. Listen, I'm just going to drag you back purely because it's the question that everyone is asking and or, or the area uh, that people are the most culturally engaged in and, and it's the barrier to so many people coming to faith. So, so for example, yesterday uh, my friend was ch ch chatting to two lovely uh, gay Christian ladies who are on their discipleship journey and they were told that they couldn't get married at the church and that was a massive stumbling block to them. Now, that, there's loads of minefields, minefields in that. With that kind of scenario, you know, how, how do you do that pastorally and with integrity and scripturally? Yeah, I think this is where the braver and kinder comes in again. You know, um, when we wrote a conversion therapy letter to the prime minister, one of my oldest friends I used to live with who lives with his fella rang me up and told me all the things he disagreed with about the letter. But, you know, we ended the conversation as friends. Mm -hmm. um, we ended, I, I think our culture's got a real problem with agreeing to disagree. I yeah. really do. Mm -hmm. I really do. Social media's killing that off. We can't compromise on God's word, but we can be, be the kindest people possible. Mm -hmm. I also think there's wider conversations here. We need to make sure as the church, we're, we're pulling into a wider conversation around two things. One's around being human. You know, we're doing a lot of work on this in EA into the end of this year. What does it mean to be human in this day and age? Because we're all getting pulled purely into sexuality. Yeah. Whereas actually um, personhood's really important. And probably the least interesting thing about someone is their sexuality. So let's talk about what it means. What does biblical anthropology look like? Let's pull into that conversation. I think also I will not compromise on this area of human sexuality. You know, the Bible is, is suitably clear. Marriage is between a man and a woman. However, however... We've got to raise our bar on holiness full stop. So it feels like we get very preachy on some issues and not on others. So if you look around the world where the church is exploding is where the church is, is praying, is, are making small steps of obedience, but there's also a different type of holiness to in the West. So we need to start speaking into other things too. You know, if in doubt, don't watch that. Don't snort that. Don't look at that. Stop fiddling your taxes. We need to raise the bar on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think as well, we need greater we need greater pastoral care for those making the, some of the bravest decisions for Jesus. Some of my friends who are same-sex attracted and choosing to be celibate, they are making some of the bravest decisions for Jesus. Their sacrifice in some ways feels far greater than mine. And they are some of my heroes in this stage. So we need to get alongside some of these folks as well with a greater kindness and journey with them and support them more. But I think the one thing that will not grow the church in this country is going more liberal on scripture on a number of issues. What that will do is make us magnolia wallpaper on the world's agenda, as opposed to closer to the revival we all long for. Well, I think you've expressed that really well. And uh, may we indeed speak the truth in love and grow in our kindness as we communicate without compromising. Now, uh, I can hear it as you speak because you speak fast and with such passion, you're oozing passion. You know, why do you do what you do? 
I am giving my life to people in the United Kingdom meeting Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Saviour. Youth for Christ, that was very clear. One demographic as well. Part of the journey from Youth for Christ to EA, which I didn't talk about earlier, was twofold. One, I felt God say to me, there are not age sections in heaven, mm -hmm. just brothers and sisters. And there's not 8 million people in the UK, there's 65 million. And so I'm kind of like not limiting myself by age. I also remember my wife saying to me, you are too safe, you are too comfortable, and you are too popular in this role at Youth for Christ. And mm -hmm. the Lord didn't make you to be any of those things. That's and good. that alongside a few prophetic words led me to the EA, which actually is the Gospel Alliance, effectively. We're all about the Gospel. The reason we speak out on issues is because we love the Word of God, is because we don't want the Gospel being watered down to, to something less than it is. But in the end, I do what I do because I want to see every person in the United Kingdom come into a personal relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I say just the United Kingdom? Well, I'm one of the few people, you, you won't have met many of us, Simon, who are absolutely convinced that their calling a mandate is this island that we're on. Mm -hmm. And I know lots of people, I love traveling, I love going to other places, but I know lots of people, yourself included, with what you did in Burundi, it's amazing stuff. But I've just felt really clearly from the Lord time and again, this, this is your mission field, step into it. And so for as long as that is the case, I will keep giving my life every day to making Jesus known and to doing it with as many others as possible. It may not always look like that from a distance, but the reason I do anything I do is purely for the gospel to extend and the Great Commission to be more fulfilled in the United Kingdom than it is currently. Well, I will back you to the hilt and cheer you on all the way and pray for you and your family as I've been committed to for a number of years now. Keep it up, buddy. Thank you. Maybe last question. You know, what's your biggest unfulfilled dream? <laughs> to be a footballer. No. Um, <laughs> I think there's there's two things I would love to see. One I've just alluded to before. I, I just would love to see a major move of God in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd just love to see the United Kingdom turned inside out, upside down and back to front for Jesus. I'd love to see something I've only dreamt or read about. Um, I sin a little bit when I hear about revivals around the world, not because I don't want them to keep happening, but I'm jealous. I want it here. I'd love to see. I'd love to see that. And I believe I will see it in my lifetime. But the other option is I die believing it was coming tomorrow. You know, I choose every day to be a person of hope, to, to get up expectant of what God can do. Because we sing about a God who moves mountains, but... Do we really believe it for here? And so I'd love to see that. And then the other thing a bit closer to home is I just love both of my children to grow up to really know and love the Lord mm -hmm. and to have, I don't mind what they do. And in some ways, wouldn't it be great if they, if they didn't work for the EA, you know, I have to protect my son sometimes because <laughs> of the story we shared yeah. earlier. I have to protect my son because quite a lot of people prayed when he was in the womb and therefore it's like, Oh wow. A calver who was saved miraculously in the womb. What are you going to do? No, no, no. Just let him be a young boy. He's doing great. But I'd love both my kids to know and love the Lord and to step in to serve him wherever he leads. Brilliant. Well, it's uh, Hebrews 12, isn't it? We've got to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Mm. And similarly, I come from you know, four generations of missionaries in Burundi. I know some of my siblings might have felt the pressure to 
as a gilbo, as a as a calver for your boy and uh, your daughter. But uh, no, we just want them to run at their race. And we want mm. all of you guys listening to run your race. And, you know, each week we're hearing absolutely beautiful, stirring testimonies. I hope you're feeling inspired by what Gav has shared at 100 miles an hour in terms of all these absolute gems that he's come out with. So listen, Gav, uh, we're going to go our separate ways now. Any Anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to cover? Anything you want to promote before we say bye? <laughs> it would be remiss of me not to say, if you're not a personal member of the EA, and you stand where we stand on wanting to unite the church to make Jesus known. Would you consider joining? It's a cup of coffee a month, three pound a month. I'll send you a book. You engage with many others. We're made up of three and a half thousand churches, 500 organisations, tens of thousands of individuals making Jesus known. And we'll take your voice into the corridors of power where otherwise you might not go. And it will strengthen the voice of the church in this nation. So eauk.org forward slash join us. Otherwise, go for it, friends. We're in this together. And let's believe that the Lord wants to do mighty things in our nation at this time. Amen. So that's EAUK.org. If you're listening, I think you can tell that Gav is um, God's man at this time. And he's got a very strategic role and he needs, and his family needs, the ministry needs, loads of prayer backing. Mm. So I'd love it if some of you committed to that. And listen, Gav, it's been an absolute pleasure. God bless you, mate. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And all you lot, I hope you are indeed inspired. That's just what we're trying to do. Hopefully it does what it says on the tin. So I'm going to see you next week with another fantastic guest. Please do subscribe on iTunes. It'd be great if you could give us a, a stunning review. That just means more people get to hear these stories of faith. And if you want to be in touch with me, simongilbo.com or any of the other social media platforms. That's it for now. Toodaloo.